0: everyone. Sasha and Michael here with exciting news. The podcast is uh, now sponsored. We've (laughs) been holding out, waiting to find a partnership that would really feel meaningful to us. You know how protective we are of everything we're doing and wanting it to sort of live up to a certain standard. And of course, relationships have everything to do with that. But um, the podcast is now being sponsored by my favorite photo lab in the city, which is amazing. It's called Picture House and the Small Dark Room. Such a great name. It yes. is. It's long, <laughs> but great. Picture House and the Small Dark Room is a darkroom and post-production studio that's been servicing the photo community in New York City since 1996, so they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. If you've got a question about your film, they're amazing staffs ready to help with film processing, high-res scanning, darkroom printing, and digital post and they've also uh, just opened a photo book store and have been hosting artist talks and book signings. Yay! Um, we are That's all exciting. about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. love that. So these guys are home to pros, amateurs, beginners, and everyone in between. So for our audience out there, this is the place for you. Um, and we're just, we're so excited. And we love their values. The people who work there have been working there for many, many, many years. It's like a, a big family. But don't let that fool you. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty <laughs> elaborate place. Um, multi-floors, uh, space in Chelsea really incredible facility.
1: Yeah, so I've known about them for, for quite a few years uh, through friends of mine who, some of them are, are quite well-known, uh, others are not so quite well-known, so they really are open to everybody.
0: Yeah, I mean, Claudia and Richard, who are two of the owners, are just really lovely people. So they do have very high-end fancy clients, but they're they love <laughs> working with... <laughs> They love working with beginners and helping people out and helping people find their voice through the kind of posts and, and printing services that they do. So it's really there to collaborate with you. Um, and they just worked with one of my artists. I won't say who, but they're, they're doing really <laughs> amazing work. And they're just they're great people um, with incredible yeah facilities.
1: And on that note, if you call yeah. them and mention photo work, you can get 20% off of film services and 10% off of print services. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can reach them at 212-243-0170. Or you can visit phtsdr.com. That's phtsdr for picture house in the small darkroom.com.
0: So picture house in the small Dark Room, Welcome to the photo work family. All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and touchy feely version of my book, Photo Work 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, uh, recording from the giant aluminum can in Woodstock, New York, and uh, joined as usual by my good friend and producer, Mr. Michael Chauvin-Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hello there. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, How about you? Yeah, yeah. All good. Spring has arrived, and the snow is melting, and... um, it's nice to be able to get out more in fact I've been risking life and limb over the past five months that I've been um, living in the airstream because I'm sort of in a tree grove oh, and yeah the winds up here have gotten more intense you know I've mentioned them up on the top of a mountain and but the winds have definitely gotten more intense as they have all over the country or world mm-hmm. and so When they get above, when the gusts get above 30, 35 miles an hour, I usually sleep in the house and sometimes I'm out here and I don't really realize they're going to get really bad and then it's really scary because I can see out the window. I have these 60 foot pines. Mm. Some of them are actually more than 60 feet and I can see them. It's like they're just absolutely waving in the wind and so that makes for a tough night's sleep. Just out of anxiety. So anyway, oh, yeah. yesterday, finally had these tree specialists come by and identify the trees that are most likely to kill me. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> there are three that are in danger of coming down because they are, for one reason or another, vulnerable. Uh, a woodpecker or one of them is actually split into two. Oh. Um and it's actually split at about 10 feet high, but then you've got another like 60 feet of these two different sort of offshoots. Anyway, if a tree is split like that, even if the base looks really solid, it's they're just vulnerable. So anyway, they're all coming down. The guys are going to come with all the... It's going to be really fun to watch because they are so big, and these are the kind of trees you you don't just cut down. You have to actually go up with a
1: climb and big take down cherry yeah. picker. And yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. So my grove will thin out a little bit, but I'm much less likely to be uh, crushed to death, which. Is sort of an irony I'm not that into. like she she had this dream. <laughs> she had this dream to live in a stream and then was was crushed to death. so that that doesn't seem like fun. So yeah, taking no. care of that. Yeah, can have a more restful, you know, because the winds also get really crazy during the summer um, and some of the summer storms and stuff. So. It, it
1: definitely has changed. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you can get 60 mile an hour gusts out of nowhere now and it just comes yeah. and goes. Yep. Sometimes
0: yeah. I watch the storms up here and when I'm in the big house, there are so many of these really, really tall pines and I can't even believe they don't come down because mm-hmm. it is amazing just what the natural world is capable of and these things are really they're like seven eight story buildings they're really skinny right they only have pine you know action, right. action <laughs> at sort of the, the, the top like 10 feet uh-huh. and it's amazing the you know they can sway like right eight ten feet over in either direction and you think they're going to just all come down but they don't you know it's it's only the ones that are really um have some damage to them but it is an incredible sight so you know safety first and then yeah. you can sit back yeah. and admire nature um but okay so that's our um
1: <laughs> our nature that's talk our for outdoor today. nature yes. talk
0: right
1: <laughs> um. well it is really beautiful <laughs> where you are and uh, it, it is. You know, there's a a little. Uh, Want to uh, be safe. Yeah, give and take. You gotta uh, <laughs> you gotta take care of yeah, the uh, surrounding area. Yeah, yeah.
0: Ooh. Actually, had this other guy. I swear to God, is this this guy is a PhD um, <laughs> in trees, whatever that Probably. is exactly. And Yeah. He came. He came first a couple of weeks ago, and he said that. He used to urge people to never cut down trees, that they were always overreacting, and mm-hmm. to let these old growth trees do their thing. And And now he's just totally changed his tune because of the changing weather patterns. That's
1: interesting. So, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, okay, so I said we were going to stop, and then I continued. <laughs> we <kept> um, going. <laughs> so, as we said in the top, in the promo, we yes. have... A new sponsor, Picture House, and the Small Darkroom. And, and it's just really exciting. I'm so happy to work with these guys. Mm-hmm. So that's just a great piece of news for yeah, us. Yeah. And hopefully for them.
1: Yep. Check them out. Yes.
0: And he, <laughs> check them out. And even if you don't use their services, go, and if you're in the city, go over and they're building. I mean, it already exists, but they're continuing to build out this really wonderful idiosyncratic. Bookstore, yeah, it's just very special, and they'll so, have events um, soon,
1: and so definitely yeah, uh, get on their list. Events. Yeah,
0: I think we're going to have an event there. Um, actually, uh, we'll probably have our fundraiser there. Um, oh wow, and maybe maybe some other stuff. Yeah, working on on that plan, but yeah, and also we're working on a Zoom for the community, so we can all see each other. Mm-hmm. Um, That's going to be in May with a special guest. Uh, I think that's going to be really fun. So let us know if that's something you'd like to be a part of. Um, There might be a small fee, but it'll be very small just to sort of cover our costs. Mm -hmm. I think that'll be really fun because we know our audience. We just get so much mail from you guys, but we don't get to see you. And so... We thought, now that we're really... The foundation is really up and running and everything is is moving along, we're working on getting... Uh, writing out the applications for the mentorship program, which will launch at the end of the summer. Um, mm. But we thought maybe it would be nice to start seeing faces and, and coming together as the photo work community. So yep.
1: excited about that. Yeah, I think that will be a lot of fun.
0: And you and Taylor and I will, will be on that Zoom. So yeah, more to come on that. <laughs> anyway, how did you like uh, to, today's guest is the photographer who's having a lot of success right now. um Tommy Kah, how did, how did you what did you think?
1: Yeah, Tamika has some really interesting thoughts about photography and what photography is to him, especially in terms of the idea of it as a language and as a way of getting to know people, which having kind of grown up in a, the, the more uh, traditional modernist world of photography, hearing things from, you know, like Gary Winogrand saying, you can't really know people, it's just light on the surface. It's so fascinating to hear someone talk about photography as a way of getting to know people,
0: yeah, I thought that was very cool too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tommy, you know, I think he had a lot of coffee um, the morning we were recording.
1: <laughs> he says he's a he said he was a fast talker, and you said that's okay, I think, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, he he lived up
0: to that, um, but he has a lot in there. Is a lot of really interesting content.
1: Yeah, and and you know, he talks about Memphis as this kind of place of fiction and shifting memories, and and I think that's really true. People have. Uh you know, if you know Memphis, you know what it is, but if you don't, you have this kind of romantic idea of it.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Well Tommy sort of deconstructed that and personalized it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he's a really lovely guy. I, I I'm fond of him and um was real appreciative that I mean he's so busy right now, so yeah. um he really made time for us and, and we Absolutely. we're really grateful. So thank you, Tommy. Um yes. And, well, why don't we get to it? Because we spent a lot of time talking about trees, and <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, this is a show about photography, I think. Um,
1: I don't so. know. I'm, I'm thinking about an arborist <laughs> podcast now. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, by the way, I did get a nice piece of fan mail the other day uh, where the person said, more of you and Michael. Oh, there you go. This is for you. That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now we'll look at the next one. We'll be enough of you and Michael.
0: (laughs) man it's hard to win i know we can only predict that you don't even have to send those emails we know we get it (laughs) we can predict that's right it might be you and michael fine tree talk Um, oh boy oh boy all right well just being our authentic selves um And on that note, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away.
1: My pleasure. And here's your conversation with Tommy Kah.
0: Tommy Ka, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. It's awesome to have you on. Thank you so much for, for spending time today and making the time to do this.
2: Oh, my gosh, Sasha, thank you so much for having me. Um, yay. Hello. Thank you, everyone. Hello. For, uh, <laughs> listening to my voice. I'm going to try to practice my NPR fo- radio voice.
0: Um, <laughs> Good luck with that. Which,
2: yeah. Yeah. It's just uh, I think it's just it's only smooth talking like this. A little bit. So, uh, I, I tried, th- tried that this morning and I just immediately laughed. I couldn't hold uh, hold it together. So Also, by the way, um, we don't want people to
0: fall asleep. So don't. Um, yeah. I think two of our fastest talkers that we've had and um, sort of the most high energy have been incredibly popular episodes. So people. Yeah. We, we know. Like, we like the high energy, the Todd Heido high energy. So. All right. Well, so much to talk about um, because you are, you are, you're it, man. You're, you're, you're killing it right now. Lots going on and um, really exciting stuff, and we will get to all of that. But let's start how we always do. If you can tell us just your bio, where you come from, and how you got to where you are today, what your journey was, that would be great.
2: Oh man, I should have practiced on. The Cliff Notes version of my origin stories, but we I like the details. Up, it's okay. You like the details. Yeah. yeah, I um I grew up in Whitehaven, uh where Great uh where Graceland is Elvis's home. Um mm-hmm. was five minutes away from me growing up. I went to Memphis College of Art for undergrad, and then I uh, attended uh, and graduated from. Yale University's MFA program in photography. And I moved to New York um, after briefly spending a semester here in 2010 and 2013. I moved after school and been trying to make things work and figure things out as I go. Um, Not the best advice I'd give to people (laughs) um, aspiring to make it as an artist, but there was a lot of, I guess, isolated childhood experiences for me because there wasn't a lot of other Asian people outside of my family. I've, I've just never seen anyone else apart from my family for a really long time. So that's something I didn't really had such a conscious awareness of. I was a child. So um, things I've kind of think about now, I have the words to describe them um, much later on and how m- much of that has started to play into my picture making but I'm digressing and yeah i and mostly that is my my origin story i've done photography for a, a while and i started to make pictures i started out making pictures of my friends my immediate circle of communities and That was the crux of my early, early work was I was interested in using the camera to meet people, um, to understand people that I just come across and find them interesting in some way. Like there's some kind of just people watching or randomly walking down the street. There's something about somebody that strikes me that makes me want to know them better. Do the camera. And so that's how I started. And when I was here in 2010, that was a really big uh, change in my work because that's when I started to do self-portrait work and turning the camera to myself because I didn't have that community anymore um, for that time because I didn't know anybody. And so it made sense to uh, make pictures of myself. And I didn't think I was interesting. I still don't think I'm interesting enough. And I think that's like kind of what's Been playing out lately uh, Where I'm at now
0: What do you mean when you say you don't think you're Interesting enough you don't think you're an interesting Enough subject or uh, What does that mean
2: Early on I just was You know it was 2010 so conversations About um, identity I was really familiar with the work of Nikki S. Lee and you know I was familiar with Cindy Sherman's Untitled stills that doesn't sound Right but anyway and I just didn't think I was interesting for the camera or that I didn't make a really great subject matter. I didn't want to immediately talk about, like, just because I was in front of the camera. And I think this is because of the environment of my undergrad that there was this assumption that if you make a self portrait of yourself, it was synonymous to your identity and thus tied to your race, that it was really synonymous to your own ethnic identity. And I wasn't really interested in making that work because I wasn't sure myself. There was not a lot of references. People, I think there was only one catalog of chi- a survey of contemporary Chinese photography that I asked my librarian thank you MCA uh, to buy it for me so I'll be able to read what is going on in the other side of the world which I had no connection with there was no language to go on you know the idea of making work in Memphis is I don't know it felt like I was overshadowed by The strong photographs of Eggleston's work and Sally Mann, Alex Sof, Christian Berry, um, people who've like gone, came through the South and made work um, at the time. There are tons of people. And I just felt like I wasn't allowed to make that kind of work. And then when I turned the camera to myself, it was also like, I don't know what I'm trying to say um, because I had no idea what my background was to me. I didn't value myself that much. And I think that's why I, it kind of became inadvertently these character studies of being stoic, being deadpan, being the uh, really looking at how what my role is, both a photographer and actor, a performer. And those are the things that I really kind of that has stuck with me over the years. While I was always questioning my levels of Asianness, my Chinese-ness, my Vietnameseness and Americanness and my westernness. and even being a photographer at all, but it really felt like photography was being a photographer was the consistent identity that no one really questioned me. People I've now realized I've grown up um, have always kind of made me feel out of place in really microcoded ways. Sorry, that was such a long answer. No, no, that, I'm, that I'm question. keep.
0: I'd like you to keep talking. I'm. I think you've. You're really talking about something fascinating, and I, 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 love this idea that you know you felt you know that people questioned who you were and and what your identity was and but they allowed you somehow to be a photographer. I mean, that, that's really interesting. And I, I, I could see that that would make you really, really want to be a photographer, particularly, you know, when you're a young man, and that must have felt like a real respite or a real coup in a way to have, you know, found this thing. You know, we, anyone who's taken pictures seriously that has walked around with a camera – knows that feeling of armor, protection, power, etc., that the camera can afford you. And also, of course, give you an opportunity to sort of be involved, but yet stay on the sidelines, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you don't have to be laughing and smoking weed and hanging out with all the cool kids doing everything they do, but you can sort of be part of the group, if you have your camera with you. it so sort of makes you interesting and it gives you something to do. I mean now I'm talking a lot, but No, you're not. I mean I like I, I, I love what you were getting to and I hadn't heard you or read you know, I was obviously doing a lot of research on you and I I haven't heard you say that before. And so that's, you know, really fascinating to me and and relatable. So I mean you so you are in this sort of complex situation. As you said, you're Chinese and Vietnamese, your family came to the United States from Vietnam in the 1980s. You didn't have a lot of artistic influences in your family, although you later found out your mother had also made photographs without a lot of ambition, but she clearly enjoyed using a camera as well. So how do you wind up Even getting involved in photography, I'm always really interested in who someone's initial mentor is because I think it's so important.
2: Oh, man, that, that is such a, uh, a cutback to a previous lifetime. I even feel like that was two lifetimes ago. Um, to even think about um, the first picture, I've, I would say it's a combination of things. I think I did it to impress somebody, mm-hmm. of course, a guy, <laughs> of course. And I'm like, I don't need a man. But yeah, I don't. I don't. I'm trying to convince myself right now, <laughs> as I say this, I don't, I don't need a man. Um, but I was, um, you know, I was young and I was really um, impressionable, but I also was trying to prove something then. I don't know. I was like, I got the same camera as this other person. And I think it was really, you know, I went along when I was realizing I was uh, queer, I was gay. And I like that it kind of coincided together um, when I mm-hmm. was really uh, when I started to pick up a camera at all. It coincided with um, discovering my sexuality, but also, you know, really terrible choices of trying to impress somebody at all. It's like mm-hmm. just be yourself. It's like, but you can't do that when you're an awkward, you know, 11, 12, 13 year old. But I remember having a disposable camera on a trip to New Orleans and I had such a uh, I think it was a middle school trip and I don't remember the other pictures, but I'm sure it was of my friends or something dumb like um, a pitch black flash picture of the sky, which is just a black picture, just nothing there on a glossy Walgreens print. Um, that you got so or I got so cheaply. So, but the one thing I remembered was this Rock City marquee, maybe Rock City Theater or something like that, and it was just a marquee, a theater marquee at a venue, and I was so proud of that picture. I don't know where those pictures are. I really hope I run across it one day, someday but it's, uh, it was just the first picture I made. It was a flash picture. It was from a Kodak disposable camera, the one that you take on trips. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I had a lot of fun, but I didn't really... Uh, think about uh, photography until I was in high school, I did some journalism classes, I was exploring acting and theater, filmmaking, I was doing these workshops outside of school and so photography was this back burner. I could take a class for a year and then I did an independent study that uh, just gave me uh, when I really, really started to think about being a photographer. I mentioned this this morning. If I can say this, it's like the first photograph I saw in a museum. I always love this. Uh, I think this is what made me felt being a photographer. What I'm doing now was made possible by seeing the Sandy Skoglin Revenge of the Goldfish at
1: mm-hmm. the Brooks
2: Museum. I think sometime when I was in early high school, maybe ninth grade. I don't know. What is time? But <laughs> I... <laughs> I saw that picture, the blues and the oranges, the sculptural, the the in-camera, the the building, the construct of that picture, it was large, too. I'd never seen anything like it before, and I was like, I think I want to be this kind of photographer. Fast forward years later, my friend Jordan Castile recommended me for a position at New York campus, for the Rutgers New York campus in New Jersey, and mm-hmm. I got a teaching post there. To I taught my first photography classes, intro for photography, and incidentally, I ended up teaching with Sandy Scolham. <laughs> I got to meet her. I got to talk to her. I still am in touch with her. She sends me these like early morning. I don't know anyone else that's up in the morning at 6 a.m. I am. And can yes, call me. oh I love that please I, I like <laughs> taking pictures of the sunrise because I, I am a cliche sometimes I just like to make <laughs> fun pictures for myself and you know no one's gonna see it maybe if I posted to Instagram probably but uh, Sandy would just send me DMs and emojis and just thinking of me and it's like and she looks at my stuff and she's so sweet and and amazing and so inspirational just to talk to it's like I'm just still making work I'm still here I'm still making work, she says. And it's just like, yeah, that's awesome. And I'm so glad that that those things correlated. And then to just top it all off is just this really mad year for me. In the last year, I'm jumping ahead so much. But to end this story, the short story, I ended up doing... a a special installation for the Tennessee Trinity. Um, This is their inaugural year. Um, So venues across Tennessee get to are displaying artists um, as a sort of survey, but to uh, really make visible artists that have been there and been making work. So I was invited to install a piece at the Brooks Museum. And that is up. Until until August, October, it's up there for a really long time, and I'm just thinking like, oh wow, I can't believe I saw a Sandy Skoglund picture, and this is what inspired me to really do it. And then I'm in the same space, in the same it's the same exact area. I saw the picture. It's in the rotunda. My installation is there, and it's such a a full circle. Oh yeah,
0: I, I, it's very moving. It's really it's fantastic. That's a wonderful story. So you eventually. Uh, wound up at Yale, as you said, and how was that experience mm-hmm. for you?
2: Oh, man, I, I I appreciate so much of, I didn't understand what was happening to me. It's like I got, I did a brownout for two years is what mm-hmm. I described right. it. Yeah. But I didn't have a, a, an of experience as my colleagues because, you know, grad school is a very, um, it's very an intense environment already um, to really look at what we're doing at our work at w- our process to try things out but also to really really focus and develop ourselves as mm-hmm. the best versions as we can and I got lost I think like I wish I was a little more confident than than I am now I think I started to question a lot of what I been doing in my own picture making um, at the time, but I was making a lot of different kinds of pictures and really bad pictures. I hope people one day refer to that period as my art suck period. (laughs) It was just really bad, but I'd done a lot of pictures I am proud of that has led me to these directions I am doing now that, but yeah, I really learned to appreciate my time there after after being away for so long, um, my hands stop clamming up every time I I, I think about th- that mm-hmm. space. But <laughs> I had a really great time. You know, my experience of Ellen Dougherty is the art my art historian from undergrad. And she was uh, she was like responsible for teaching like photography history, of photography, and all the knowledge I I have about it is from her. And it was just crazy for me to ha- put up work. 12 times in front of people I studied
0: <laughs> right now that's intimidating for sure <laughs>
2: It was very, I think, you know, American Idol was very popular then, I think, or just starting. And I definitely interviewed with someone that auditioned on American Idol and told us about it. But it was a very American Idol style panel or way of setting us, uh, the students up. We're presenting work, we're putting up work. And I was just like, you know, I feel so embarrassed that I made terrible pictures <laughs> Uh just like oh I'm so sorry Lorna Simpson that you have to look at this really bad <laughs> photograph um that I hope that we could still be friends Um, Well, you've really,
0: you found your way. I mean, and, you know, you've really developed quite a large amount of work that I think you consider at the very least adequate because it's on your website and it's out in the world. And so you're pretty prolific. And it seems like you're really at this point filled with, if not confidence, at least, I don't know, enough confidence to keep you you know, really in a zone where your curiosity about how something will look as a photograph you know, you're able to feed that and put out such a tremendous amount of work. And if I understand correctly, you know, although you do have different bodies of work, many of them are sort of considered one overarching body. And and I really want to talk about Baxter Street and about the book, because this is, you know, getting a lot of attention right now and, and a really tremendous accomplishment. So, a lot of those bodies of work are combined into into your new book, which was the end result of your winning the, the Next Step Award, which is something that Aperture and Baxter Street, Camera Club of New York, and 7G Foundation, this is something they've put together called the Next, Next Step Award. And you, you won in 2021. And one of the things you get a grant, money, but you also get to publish with Aperture and then have this exhibition at Baxter Street, which I just saw. So tell us about the book and about what this whole whirlwind experience has been like.
2: Oh, man. I I think uh, I've been trying to preach this with my students, to, or at least taking a page out of Legacy Russell of thinking people who helped me get to where I am at um, through my friends, my communities, my sitters, subject matters, the curators, editors, the support is just amazing. And I would love to recognize that as much as I can, because I think just to briefly show, uh, to express our gratitude for people who help us get here, I think is definitely the kind of artist I want to be. Yeah, And trying to point that out to when I teach and when trying to impart that lesson to students now that, we get to decide who, uh, who to be? So I'd love to thank them, um, everybody. The list is so numerous. I'm so sorry that I, I'm blanking on specific. Yeah, no, names but you right had now. you had but, great.
0: I mean, you had Jill Weinstock, obviously at yeah at Baxter and and Sarah Meister and Leslie Martin was the editor of the book and um Samantha Marlowe. I know and
2: yeah, I had. I mean, it was so lucky to have uh, Leslie. Martin's perspective I think she was the first person to actually take us like to really look at the the varying various bodies of work but I just saw Zora J Barf last night at mm-hmm. the uh ICP Infinity Awards. Mm-hmm. He um, won the uh, Infinity Award. I love you, Zora. But he and I go way back, and he won the first uh, Next Step Award. Right, and I know. Yeah, I would say he's responsible for a lot of this setup of, of how... I don't know. He, he Zora deserves a lot of um, so much recognition for it. helping me get here, even though he has no uh, say on the whole how I got here. It was just surprising for me. And now I'm going to talk about the award. I, I was surprised that people were even thinking about me or that I was on folks' radars. I operate in a way where I do exhibitions and I really started to seriously do it with more intended efforts of like more consideration and how I was presenting my work in 2019. I think mm-hmm. beforehand I was just phoning it in and just was like happy to be there. And then I realized like it is a privilege to just be able to see what my work looks like because people are actually wanting to see this. But, you know, I, I wasn't really worried about like drawing a crowd. I was just uh, wanting to do a good job. And that filled a lot of how I approached each show after the other to do it better than the last. And it was a lot of awkwardness. So the trust of just fast forwarding to now in the last year to put the book together, to put the show together, it's this trying to honor all the work that I've I've done that has actually did register with people in a lot more ways than I didn't think to. So it's, it's just, I'm so flattered and really humbled. And I don't, know how else to describe this amazing opportunity. Um, I just want to do a good job. Yeah. (laughs) And the book with Leslie, it was great. It was just amazing. She took she was the first person to just look at everything I had.
0: And was it Wesley's idea to combine different bodies of work or were you already sort of in that headspace?
2: I was kind of already in that headspace. I met some interesting photographers in my travels and trying to doing stuff and Hubert, um, I am butchering his last name I'm so sorry, Cabieres he's a uh, French photographer and he was the first person to describe like everything I do is one long ongoing body of work so mm-hmm. I was like yeah I think that's true mm-hmm. for any Thing I reminded me a lot of Gregory Crutzen talking about. We're essentially asking the same question just differently mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. each time he does a new project. And so I think the same. Like I can compartmentalize and it, and treat my pictures and this these short films that make up an anthology film. But yeah, I think you know it just makes sense that it is on- ongoing. So Leslie. Um, intertwining it was like actually quite set up to do that, but I was really happy to see what, uh, just whatever people were looking at. Studio Lin came in to do the design and I just am a big fan of their books, their past mm-hmm. books, like Farah al Cassini's book, ah, oh, Chef's Kiss. I am so, I'm such a lucky dude. I, uh, and you know, Leslie intertwining and interweaving my mom's work and these three bodies of work of the Southern landscapes and these cutouts of myself, my mom's collaboration, me and my mom's collaboration together over the years, I just felt right and that this is coming from the same space somehow and trying to really say what I thought. My work was about representation and identity. It's like, I think, yes, of course, I think those are really easy to say, but now it's about really finding the echoes of ourselves, uh, finding um, how much the past still reverberates in our present. When Leslie was putting sequencing, it was just like, wow, no one really considered to do this before because it was either too much work or they wanted to really just focus on one thing at a time, like one, like Mm -hmm. a series that these pictures look similar. So they have to go together, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I don't think any book editing project, any scope would be too daunting for Leslie because she's she's, you know, a master So much respect for her.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You said you were talking to, I don't know if you were talking to, but I I grabbed this from the New York Times piece on you by Michael Adno. You said language is a communal activity and communal activity is the reason we have slang, dialect, why we have accents. I'm making pictures so I can find other people that speak in the same way as me. Can you explain that to me? I'm really interested in that idea, and I, I just was, when I read that, I wanted to know more what you were thinking.
2: I have so many theories about photography, so thank you for asking. I just, I, 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 I don't think this is anything clever or anything new. I don't but require yeah, I, you,
0: by the way, just yeah. interested in your thoughts. <laughs>
2: You know, I equate photography, this is an old way of thinking, so I think I butchered that quote when I was talking to Michael for that article, but I always had the the idea that photography by now is such it's so ubiquitous. It's so mm-hmm. in every day in our lives, like through billboards, to our smartphones, to us being inundated by them um, in some form or fashion. And I think people are able to speak in photography a lot more, and I'm not to say it's a universal language, but I think it is a very interesting way to look at photography um, as in a l- linguistic point of view. Mm-hmm. I also think of photography as like between um, not just mirrors and windows, but about being haunted and an exorcism. It's like photography's ghost hunting, which really goes against what I wrote for Aperture photo no-nos, uh, um, <laughs> but I'm going on a tangent. So we're sticking to the point of I felt that photography, you know, thinking about it, photography, both photography and language are communal activities. And that's the reason why we have these slang and dialects of the same um, language. And I am trying to use photography to do the same thing with not just trying to build on self-portrait work. I just, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to have fun with what is possible, but really viewing things and how? Um, if I speak in a certain way, I'm able to, or I'm can I can cast a net to find others that are speaking in a similar way. Maybe it's a trying to find other people that speaks pigeon or finding people that are other photographers that happen to speak this, but don't necessarily do self-portraiture or do southern landscapes. Or does
0: that mean? That you are interested in, you know, finding a group of people who are responding to your work in a way that makes it clear that they they get you because they then are clearly part of your they're going to be part of your tribe. Yeah,
2: I think it's a way of coding, sending a signal in some way. I think that's an interesting way to put it. It's like, I just, I grew up with uh, not a lot of representation. I think I love Buffy the Vampire so much that it's like, you know, it was, I cite Buffy not just as like a fun pop culture reference or a citation, but it was like something I was going on to find representation was through these surrogacies, you know? Yeah, well, that was a brilliant world. show.
0: Anyone who doesn't yeah. understand that is, that's their loss. One other, one other, I have a million questions, but. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> can you talk more about this? This is in your artist statement. So I'm sure you've talked about it a lot. So I apologize. But, you know, you say Memphis has become for me, not only the place where I was raised, but an active borderland between fantasy and memory, nostalgia and history, nonfiction and mythology. Can you just talk about how that that idea actually manifests itself in the reality of making work?
2: Yeah, I, I always think like I'm trying to butcher a quote when I say it, but I think it is like, our response to Alex Link said, the South is something to be misremembered. And and he was referring to how the depiction of the South is kind of almost always in the eye of the beholder, I guess, that in a way that it is, the idea of the South is always constantly shifting in the minds of others. But the Mm -hmm. main idea of the self is like stuck in the past it's um mm-hmm. all, it's this the the fleetingness of nostalgia and, and that's something I had I grappled with it's Dealing with parallel—I don't want to say alternate histories because I don't want to imply anything—but I it was living with parallel histories. You know, in Tennessee, they were we my U.S. history class in high school. We were only allowed to learn things after eighteen sixty-three, I believe, or eighteen seventy-three. And the point was was to go past Reconstruction. You know what was before Reconstruction? Slavery. And it was I was lucky to have a teacher that was that recognized the uh, the really weird state um, placed on I I think it's just there's so many easy things to criticize Tennessee right now and it's just it's really my it's just infuriating at this point yeah of having to experience this that is a very specific way of the South being misconstrued there are definitely places of uh, that are progressive and pockets and oases of communities that are thriving in the South. And I think, you know, 13 years ago, people were not interested in um, work about me being Asian. And then thus, in effect, people weren't interested in this kind of identity politics that was coming into play, which quickly turned into intersectionality. The point was, no one was talking about Baldwin Lee to me when I was at Yale.
0: Let me let me ask you a, a sort of overarching and, and a question. I could ask a lot of artists, and I'm always interested in this: how an artist feels about work either being misinterpreted, and and that's obviously a very complicated word to use here because work is often good work has a lot of subtext and is open to different interpretation. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: well, let me get to exactly what I'm I'm talking about. You have a photograph of your your mother sitting on the floor of a dentist's office. And mm-hmm. my understanding is that it's your father's old dental office. Is, is that correct?
2: It's my grandfather's, my mom's dad. Um, your mom's
0: dad. Okay. Your yeah. grandfather's. Mm-hmm. But we don't know that in the photograph. Nope. Is that... Is that important? I guess what I'm asking or what I'm thinking about is that it seems to me that that's a very key little factoid that this is your grandfather's, you know, it's not some random (laughs) dentist's office. And, but yet we don't know that unless like me, you did a lot of research and in some, I don't even remember where I read it, but somehow I found that out. And then that added this other layer to the photograph. So what happens? Because, you know, a lot of your work, not a lot, but certainly some of your work, like many other artists, is there are things in it that we, the audience, don't know. We don't understand unless we read about it. We don't get certain messages or references. So how how do you think about that as the creator, as a maker? What you know versus what may or may not be communicated to your audience.
2: Yeah, I. That's an interesting uh, question to pose against that particular photograph. I definitely don't think it's important for folks to have to know that bit of information in order to appreciate the photograph. When I try to also impart this when I teach. Is the idea that we can only really, artists, we can only control our intentions, our tools, our materiality. And that uh, once it goes up on the wall, that once it becomes this public interaction, just merely by allowing people to look at it. I want people to connect, or if they don't connect, that's okay as well. That happens. I don't think every, everybody has to like everything. It's more important for me that to control my intentions, and those are usually to have fun, satisfy my curiosity. Because Dorothy Parker said, uh, the cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity. That is enough for me. I've realized Mm -hmm. a while ago, in I think around 2018, I just left Rutgers to just seriously take on being an artist and, you know, teachers should be paid more. That's that's a sidebar there, but I believe teachers should be paid more. Um, But I remember when I, in 2018, and I decided to just do the artisting and see what it means to put myself out there, I really gave up. Like I literally had a day where I just like I I give. I just I'm just going to have to have fun. I I I just I don't I don't know how I'm going to be able to make this photograph with little money, but you know, I can still make pictures, so I guess that means something. Um so I decided after that I just said fuck it um because It just it mattered to me that I was just making pictures at all, like somehow, even if they were bad, I was just able to do it at all was satisfying enough with because I, I knew I could do it with resources and I definitely could make pictures when I was definitely limited in my resources. So I think about that, you know, and that just kept on going to only think about my own intentions And I like when people look at my work because they have information that I do not have. And I love when people interpret it because they're just providing this bit of information I wouldn't have otherwise. And Mm -hmm. it's okay to be vulnerable and that the work doesn't land sometimes, but it does land for other people who might be interested or it speaks to them in some way because they have experiences and that I've never had.
0: You know, I think what, a lot of what you're saying, not all, but a lot of what you're saying is just how important loving the process is and finding a process that, you know, can keep you going even in difficult times. And, you know, your work is often described as playful. I mean, it's amazing how many times that word is used to describe your work. And I see that as well, of course. I mean, you have a really great sense of humor. And, you know, so it seems like, you're having fun. Now, of course, just because the end result seems playful and funny doesn't necessarily mean you're having fun making the work, but it does seem, it seems like that. And of course, that can keep you going. I mean, if you're really struggling and not having fun with the process, then I can't imagine. I think that's probably when people stop their art, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. unless they're real masochists. So, tell me about Because one of the bodies of work that seems sort of outside of the work we've been talking about is Return to Sender, which is a really wonderful body of work where you have strangers kiss you and you are really not returning the kiss. You're sort of... Like a, a receptacle that's that's sort of passively getting this kiss. The photographs are very beautiful, formally really gorgeous, as is all of your work. But what's going on with that body of work? And are we going to see a book of of that? And yeah, what's what's the status so. of that? Yeah, seems like a no brainer.
2: Yeah i I was working on some kind of book layout with um, some friends from school. And it had to be uh, so far it's kind of like on the back burner and hopefully one day I could be able I'm able to revisit it as an actual book. But the layout is there. The design is there. I just actually re-edit a lot of them because during the course of making the book for Aperture with Aperture, I learned to color grade better mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my work and I was like oh man I can't believe well people could definitely see my really bad edits on the internet which is fine I think that's okay I could live with that because then they get to see this like better improve edited version and that the Kissing Pictures Return to Sender was the first serious body of work I did with everything I learned um, during my semester in 2010 and it's a Body of work I still return to when I'm stuck somewhere because I know mm-hmm. how how to do those pictures very well. Since I'm less interested in doing things seriality or kind of plan, I just kind of go on when how I'm feeling because there's so much different kinds of things I'm thinking about at any given point. Like I'm thinking about cutouts again, or I'm collaging and um, working with pillows of myself. I'm not kidding. There are literally pillows of myself floating out in the world. Right. Well.
0: Yeah, we should say uh, to people that you use a lot of sort of not a lot, but you use certain props in your work. So there's, yeah. you know, masks oh, yeah. and your face um, imposed on other things and floating in places. And it's, it's mm-hmm. playful, as we said. And and also your presentation is you know, you're not that interested in sort of just a straight up presentation of a, a print in a frame on the wall that you play around with different printing materials and printing things. So they go around a room and corners and you've made some beautiful sculptural pieces. And so there's a lot of different ideas and, and, and different material. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I love that.
0: I love the idea that it's just something that you go back to and it's sort of like a touchstone for you when... When you're thinking, yeah, you're not sure what you're going to work on next or whatever. I mean, I think that's really smart, actually.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's no, I think, well, the first issue is that no one in my life has ever told me um, how to end a project, uh-huh. <laughs> I think was one of the issues. So I have a really hard time of, of stopping because I'm always thinking like, oh, what if I reframe it this way? And I like that with Return to Sender is like the Rosetta Stone to a lot of what I'm doing today. It's a reaction to seeing Marina Abramovic and Tina Segal, not just seeing but participating in performance art for the first time, while turning the camera to myself, while also you know being in love with Nan Golden's work at the time. So I was like making really clumsy snapshots, but it was you know how I was treating the camera, the performance of it, setting up for it. Because honestly, I just apart from cropping and editing the colors, color grading, I don't really do that much heavy Photoshop or anything at all because mostly I've don't have time for it frankly i'm just like i need to make another picture and just now i from the result of being supported by the next step award um i was able to just really play out some ideas and think about how photography can be fun but what is possible is really like the question i've been asking the last year of how photography can can be beyond a print on the wall or a photograph in a book um it's those things but as much as people like to read different things, depending on who I'm talking to, they read so many different... They Well, maybe it's a Deanna Arvis situation. I remember her saying, there comes a point that uh, what you want people to know about you and what you can't help people knowing about you. I believe that's the quote. And I think that's the same for photography. There's so many different things that, that photography can look like and it's the same image but behind a screen on paper and part of the emotion I love the idea of looking at the history of photography and looking at gift shops I remember Eric Booker from Studio Museums mentioned that I was like that's amazing because like I was working with puzzles and using cardboard cutouts and making temporary tattoos of my eyes because I was really really heavy in avoiding photoshop Uh, because it's just it's just extra work to me it's just more work and it's more fun for me to construct and location scout and walk into the situation, not just like yeah, a decisive I moment shoot yeah. photographer. But yeah, I want all those things to happen to arrive at the pictures that I want to see.
0: Well, I think you've achieved that. and. Congratulations on all of your – really, the amount of press for the show is just astronomical and I'm sure has just been an incredible whirlwind. But I thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today and hanging out and um, – be fun to meet up in in the city sometimes so yeah let's get a drink yeah man i'm up for it me too all right tommy well thank you
2: so much and and take care of yourself really appreciate it thank you so much sasha thank you so much for having me thanks for listening everybody all I right mean, y'all,
1: bye. <laughs> <laughs> bye. <laughs> photo work with sasha wolf is produced by me michael Chovan dalton a real photo show the associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform.